Good morning. Welcome to Annapolis CP Church. So happy to see all of you here this morning. I'm Nathan Boyad. I'm one of your pastors, and we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts 8, uh, verse 1 to 8 today. So go ahead and flip there, or you can follow along on the screen behind us. The past two weeks, we looked at the story of Stephen, um, his ministry, the persecution he underwent, the speech before the Sanhedrin, and his martyrdom. This week, we're going to see the direct result of all of that in the events of the first intense persecution that the church uh, went through. Let's read together in Acts 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us so that we might know you better, so we might know your will and know how you would desire us to live We pray, Lord God, that you would be present now, that you would speak through your word to each one of us exactly what we need to hear. Holy Spirit, convict, challenge, and encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In our passage today, we see the early church experience an intense persecution, which causes the majority of the early Christians to have to leave their home city, Jerusalem, and they're spread throughout the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. Luke briefly describes this persecution, just a couple of words and a couple of verses, and the results that it has on the early church. But that brief description should not cause us to overlook the fact that this was intense, this was difficult, this was suffering, and it was intense suffering that went with these early Christians, their families. It wasn't just adults, it was children as well that was undergoing this. The persecution that the early church underwent was not mild, In verse three, we read how it describes Saul as ravaging the church. This word ravage here is the same word often used of wild animals as they grab a hold of a body and shake it. This is used on purpose to show the intense nature of this suffering and persecution they underwent. Paul later, when he became a Christian, would describe this period in Acts 22 where he would say that he persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. This persecution was an intense crisis. A crisis that presented the early church and the Christians with an opportunity, with options. They could hide. They could hide from the people that were persecuting them. They could lie. They could say, oh no, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in this Jesus. They could renounce their faith. They could say, no, I'm not gonna follow Jesus anymore. I'm gonna return to my ancestral religion, the Jewish faith. Or they could double down in faith and trust in the Lord. James, the half-brother of Jesus, one of the early Christian leaders, would later in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 2, write, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He knew 
what persecution, what suffering, what trials looked like. And he says to count it joy. The word trials here is the same word that often describes a testing experience, an experience that tests your faith and your character. We here in America in the 21st century will not undergo the same type of persecution that these Christians underwent, most likely. But we live in a world broken and impacted by sin. We live in a world where humans sin against one another every day. We may not experience the intense persecution that they experienced, but we will experience suffering and trials in this life. If we want to think about suffering, we could think that there are three types of suffering. There's self-inflicted suffering, suffering that comes about because of our own stupid mistakes, our own sin, and it's self-inflicted. We cause it on ourselves. That, that's worth talking about, but that's not what we're gonna focus on this morning. We're gonna focus on the other two types of suffering. The second is suffering that's caused just because of the sinful, broken nature of the world and the fact that people sin against us. Suffering that comes about because of that. The third type of suffering is suffering because of persecution. Suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. We're focused on these last two types of suffering. Because of sin, because of brokenness, because of other people's sin, this causes suffering and trials. When suffering and trials come, we all experience a crisis. And this presents us with an opportunity. Often when suffering and trials come, we question God's goodness. We cry out, as the psalmist in Psalm 13 did, we cry out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We could think of suffering as the same as the process of a butterfly emerging from the cocoon. When the butterfly is coming out of its chrysalis, it looks like a long, arduous, difficult process. For the butterfly, it most likely feels like suffering. But the process is actually necessary. If the butterfly were to be, if the cocoon was to be broken open, the butterfly's wings would not develop it as it should. The muscles would not be strengthened and it could not fly. But if you were to tell that the butterfly in the midst of the suffering, they'd be like, what? No, get me out of this. We don't understand as well in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, that our good, loving, heavenly Father is gonna use it. That it's gonna be co-opted for his good purposes. The amazing truth is that our God uses suffering and trials in amazing ways. And that's why in that same Psalm, in Psalm 13, the psalmist can conclude, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So the big idea we're gonna explore today through Acts 8 is that because our heavenly father is a good, loving king, we can trust that he will use suffering. Because our heavenly father is a good, loving king, we can trust that he will use suffering. And we're gonna see this through four different things in our passage. That God uses suffering to discomfort us, God uses suffering to develop us, and God uses it to fulfill his will, and God uses it in unforeseen future ways. So first, God discomforts us through it. In verse one, we see there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Then jumping down to verse three, we see Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This persecution and suffering that the early church underwent was uncomfortable, to say the least. It was difficult. 
The early church in Jerusalem had faced troubles up until this point, but they'd been pretty mild by comparison. They'd been dragged before the council, the leaders, but they had been let go. They had existed in relative peace. At this point, they were most likely in Jerusalem for three to four years after Jesus' death and resurrection. We're, We're quite a bit ways down the road, but they had existed in relative peace. Stephen was the first martyr, the first time that somebody had been killed for this faith. It is difficult to know exactly how large the church uh, was when Stephen was martyred, but from the descriptions in Acts alone, right after Pentecost, the first couple weeks, we know that over 10,000 people had believed in Jesus in the weeks immediately following Pentecost. This was a couple years down the road, so most likely the church was much larger. The church was a significant presence in Jerusalem. They were influential. They were taking care of the sick, the elderly, the widows. But when Stephen is martyred, that all changes. They suffer persecution, and God often uses this to make us uncomfortable. Because when we are comfortable, we unintentionally and intentionally put up roadblocks to how God's going to work in our lives and through our lives. Let me say that again because it's important. When we are comfortable, we unintentionally put up roadblocks, sometimes intentionally, in the way of what God wants to do in us and through us. We can see this as we look at other Bible passages. In Revelation 3, Jesus, the risen Savior, speaking to the early church through the Apostle John, says to the church in Laodicea, he says in Revelation 3, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus, speaking to the church at Laodicea, says, you're too comfortable You think everything is fine. Your life is easy. And so because I love you, I'm going to make your life uncomfortable. Because I love you, I'm going to discipline you and reprove you. So we see the first way that our good, loving Heavenly Father uses suffering is to discomfort us. We could think of this in two different ways. We could think of it as two different lakes, A lake that has no water flowing in or out of it often becomes stagnant. A lake that is comfortable and at ease, peaceful on the surface, often leads to being filled with muck, algae, too much dirt. It becomes a stagnant pool. But a lake that has water flowing in and out gets stirred up so that the muck and the dirt doesn't go away completely, but is washed away eventually, and it becomes more pure, more clean. In the same way, when we are comfort, we often stagnate. But when our life gets disturbed, discomforted, sin gets drawn up, exposed, and the Holy Spirit works to help us cleanse our lives. When we encounter suffering and trials in the Christian life, we often ask, why? We say, why me, God? Why this? It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say why. It's okay to be sad, disappointed, frustrated. But if we merely ask why, if we merely feel those things, then we're missing out. We need to ask, how are you going to use this, Lord? What is your purpose in this suffering? Suffering is going to come every day, every week of our lives. If we live in this sinful world, 
faithfully trying to follow Jesus. We often want to avoid discomfort when God puts it in our lives. We are quick to self-medicate. We self-medicate with the pleasures of this world, with our jobs, with success, with family, with other things. We self-medicate so that we don't have to feel that discomfort and that pain. But rather than self-medicating, let us cooperate with the Lord. When trials and suffering make us uncomfortable, it's often because our idols are being exposed. Our idols are often how we self-medicate. In the course of Jesus' public ministry, a rich young ruler came to ask him how to receive eternal life. And Jesus reminded him of God's commandments to love one another and to love God. And the young man very proudly stated, I've kept all of these since my youth. And Jesus, it says Jesus loved him and said, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And when this young rich ruler heard these things, he went away very sad because he was very rich. The young man was discomfited by Jesus. He was made uncomfortable. He was shown his idolatry. He loved wealth and money more than God. What is your idol or your counterfeit God? What is it that you are going to to find security and joy in instead of our Lord? When you feel uncomfortable, ask that question. Is it money? Is it pleasure? Sex, alcohol, entertainment? Entertainment is a big idol and counterfeit God in our culture today. Our children, our jobs, our successes, all of these things, sometimes idols, can be good things that God has given us that have taken God's place. So each of us need to ask, are we too comfortable? And then as God discomforts us, it leads naturally to the second point. He's going to develop us through suffering. God discomforts us to develop us. Verse 1, we see all, all of the people, were, all the Christians were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And in verse 4, we see what happened when they were scattered. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. In Acts, preaching is not what's happening right now. Preaching is not giving a sermon. Preaching is proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming salvation to non-Christians who have never heard of God's salvation. So as the followers of Jesus were made uncomfortable and spread out throughout the surrounding areas, God developed them into his missionaries, his witnesses for the gospel. See, God had a plan for them, and he wanted them to develop into that. And while they were living in Jerusalem, that wasn't happening. We also see in verse 2 that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. See, at, at that time, there were additional Jewish laws of the day that would not allow public lamentation, grief, public funeral services for people executed for blasphemy. Stephen had died a shameful death. Stephen had been publicly stoned by the leading religious authorities of the day. It would have been shameful to be associated with him. But these people, these devout men, these Christians, didn't care. They wanted to honor Stephen, their beloved Stephen, their deacon who they had cared about so much. There would have been an intense cultural pressure to not honor Stephen, to bury him and be done, get away from this guy. But they didn't do that. God developed them into the people who would stand in the face of persecution and do what was right and pleasing to the Lord, to honor their martyred brother. God discomforts us through suffering in order to develop us. And James, who again I said was there, during this persecution, he knew that. And so in James 1, he writes, we already read a little bit of this, but let's read more. He writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God wants to use suffering 
to develop us. Peter, who was also there going through this same suffering, writes in 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7, a very similar thing. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, jumping down a little bit, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James and Peter, who underwent this suffering and this persecution, knew that God was gonna develop them, was gonna develop other Christians through the suffering that they underwent. So God uses suffering to develop us. When suffering comes into our lives, we should ask, how will you use this, Lord? What is it you want to show me? What is it, how is it you want me to develop and grow through this? How can I cooperate with you? The reality is that once we are saved and become Christians, we should want to grow, we should want to develop, we should not be okay with how we still are because we still have sin in our lives, we still have ways that we need to grow. So we should want to grow, but growth is not easy. Anybody who's become extremely skilled at anything knows this, whether it's a physical uh, sport, whether it's musical, whether it's a mental skill, developing skills takes effort is difficult, it takes training. If you wanna become an extreme athlete, you're gonna dedicate hours and hours of training and development. If you wanna become good at playing the guitar or the piano or singing, you're gonna practice and develop and train. If being extremely talented and good at that was easy, anybody would just pick it up and do it, but it's not. In the same manner, if we're gonna develop and grow as Christians, it's gonna take effort, it's gonna be difficult. We have to work at it and train in partnership with the Holy Spirit. God wants to use our discomfort. He wants to use our suffering and our trials to develop us. And so as suffering discomforts us and shows us the areas where we still have sin in our lives, we need to take the opportunity that the Holy Spirit is presenting us and kill the sin that's still in our lives and pursue righteousness. Righteousness is living according to God's will in a manner that pleases him. The life-giving reality of Christianity is that we, we are saved in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We have salvation from our sins. We have freedom from sin, and we are accepted by God. And the result is that we should live in a manner that pleases and honors God by obeying him in gratitude. But the reality is also that we live in this world with sin still in it and sin in our own hearts and lives, and so we need to develop and grow in holiness. And we do that by lying on the Holy Spirit and actively pursuing holiness. And this happens, as we've talked about many times before, through the means of grace, studying the scripture, meditating on it, praying, preaching the gospel to ourselves and others, being active in fellowship with other Christians, and sharpening one another. So we see that God discomforts us to develop us, and that he also uses suffering to fulfill his will. In verse five, we read, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And as Philip's proclaiming to them the Christ, the crowds are listening, they're amazed, they're excited, and they see the miraculous signs that Philip does to confirm the messages he's proclaiming, and they believe. So the result in verse eight is that there is much joy in that city. This, should, this whole passage, Acts eight, one through eight, should remind us of another Acts passage, Acts one, verse eight, where Jesus giving his commission to the disciples said, you will receive my power, or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
Jesus, the risen Son of God, had given the disciples a commission back in Acts 1-8 to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Three to four years later, three to four years after the fact, they were doing an excellent job of being witnesses in Jerusalem. They'd done almost nothing about being witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We will never know for sure, but many people speculate and question whether the early church would have ever left Jerusalem to go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth if left to their own devices. If left to their own devices, they would have continued to work there because there was so much work to be done in Jerusalem. God sometimes discomforts us in order to prompt us to do his will. He discomforts us to show us you are not doing this part of what I've called you to do. David Peterson writing on the book of Acts says, Luke introduces a pattern of events that will be repeated again and again. Rejection in one place becomes the opportunity for people elsewhere to receive the gospel. God and the gospel are not defeated by human opposition, however evil and intense. This is a pattern that's gonna happen again and again throughout the book of Acts. God is going to bring persecution and suffering and difficulty in one place, and it's gonna cause Christians to go to another place where people have never heard the gospel, and the gospel is gonna be proclaimed. Sometimes God fulfills his will and purposes in ways that we don't like or anticipate. The Jerusalem church before Stephen's martyrdom would not have thought God is going to catalyze us to go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth through our beloved Stephen's death. No, they would not have, as the apostles, the leaders of the church, were sitting down to make a five, 10 year strategic plan, they would not have put intense suffering and persecution, martyrdom, they would not have put that down as the manner by which they are gonna fulfill the Great Commission. They didn't plan that. It happened because sinful, evil opposition to God happened. But God co-opted that sinful, evil opposition and used it to fulfill his will. And we know this because the rest of the Bible speaks about this in so many places. In Romans 8, 28, Paul, one of the men who was persecuting them, would later say, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God takes what the world, what sin, what Satan means for evil, and he uses it amazingly for his will. If we were to look at a beautiful mosaic on a wall, even that stained glass window, if we were to look at it and we were to take each individual piece in isolation, we would have no idea what it is. We might in fact think it's very ugly depending on the imperfections in the glass or the piece of color. We might say, this is ugly, what is this? This isn't a piece of art. But if you take it as a whole and see it from a distance, you can understand how all the parts interact and work together and see the beautiful picture for what it is. In the same way, our individual experiences of suffering and persecution might seem incomprehensible to us. It might be that we cannot understand why it is happening and how God is gonna bring something beautiful out of it, but he will. And we will see that one day, hopefully, in heaven when we get to see his huge, awesome, grand plan of redemption and salvation play out in front of us. We could see this further through the life of Joseph, told about in Genesis. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was imprisoned after the lies of his master Potiphar's wife was told. He was left in prison despite the promises of Pharaoh's servants who promised that they would free him until finally years later he was freed by Pharaoh to interpret his dreams and became the second most powerful person in Egypt. 
at any point on that long journey, if Joseph had been relieved of his suffering early, God's plan of using him to save many thousands of people would not have come to pass. If Potiphar had believed Joseph over his wife and not sent him to prison, Joseph would not have been in a position to interpret the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer and then become Pharaoh's right-hand man. At any point along the way, if Joseph had been relieved of his suffering early, God's plan would not have been fulfilled. That doesn't lessen the fact that it was incredibly difficult. It was suffering. It was horrible for Joseph in the midst of it. But that's why Joseph could look back and say to his brothers in Genesis 45, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. God co-ops our suffering for his good purposes. Do we trust God as king? That's the question we should ask as a result of this. That's the question we should ask when we're in the midst of suffering and pain and we can't understand why it's happening. Do we trust that God is king? Of course we're gonna answer yes. We're, we're here on Sunday morning. We're all good Christians. But when the rubber meets the road, when life is disappointing, when your plan doesn't happen the way you want it to, when you don't have the poster children that your neighbor does, when your spouse disappoints you again, when you're fired, when your financial outlook is really difficult and you don't know how you're gonna make ends meet, when your boss disappoints you, when your pastor disappoints you, when you're so tired of your nation and your world's lack of justice and good, is God king? Yes, God is king and he is working in the world on his mission of bringing salvation, restoration, and justice. God is king and he is working in each of our lives specifically. We might not be able to sit here and understand how it's all gonna work out, but we need to trust that he is king and he is good. That doesn't negate the fact that sin still exists in this world, brokenness, despair still exists. Horrific things happen every day around us. If we were to focus on them, we would be incredibly depressed. But our God is king. Is he king even over those broken things? Is he king over suffering? Yes, yes he is. God is going to fulfill his will despite the opposition of sin, the world, rebellious humanity, Satan. He's going to fulfill his will despite that opposition. And amazingly, he is sometimes going to even use that opposition to fulfill his will. We may not see in the moment or even in our lifetime how the trials and sufferings we're undergoing are gonna be used to fulfill his will, but rather let us trust him who has proven again and again and again that he's faithful. Let us trust him that he is king over suffering and he will work his will through it. The final way we see God use suffering is that he fulfills his will and he often does it through unforeseen future ways. Unforeseen future ways. We see this in verse one where Saul was there approving of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And in verse three, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. As Saul was ravaging the church, mercilessly putting men and women in prison, standing by while his students stoned people and put them to death, no one in the persecuted church thought this man will one day 
be God's chosen instrument, chosen individual to go and be the apostle to the Gentiles. No one was standing there and thinking, this man will one day write over 25% of the New Testament inspired word of God. No one was thinking God will mightily use this man for his glory in the proclamation of the gospel and building up of his church body. Most likely they were looking at Saul and saying, Saul, he's killing Stephen. What is he doing? I hate that man. That's what I would have been feeling. But God saved Saul. That's why Saul was able to, in 1 Corinthians 15, write, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. In 1 Timothy 1, writing to his beloved disciple, son in the faith, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Later in Philippians 3, when he's writing to the church at Philippi, and he's reflecting on all the amazing accomplishments, certifications, education he has, he says in Philippians 3, 7, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Saul was utterly transformed. But in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of seeing Stephen executed, in the midst of him ravaging the church, that was completely unforeseen. That was completely unknown. The Saul who ravaged and persecuted the church would later in the rest of the book of Acts become the focus of the persecution. He was the one that was now going to be persecuted. In the midst of suffering, we cannot foresee the wondrous ways that our amazing, creative God is going to use our suffering. We can't even comprehend. He is like an amazing grandmaster of chess that is so many moves ahead of you that you just sit there and in complete awe as the whole thing unfolds. He's so far ahead of us, working in so many ways that we can't even comprehend. Our God is taking us to a wonderful conclusion. Jesus' return and final victory over sin, death, and Satan. Our God is going to get us there, and he's gonna do it in the most amazing, unforeseen ways. The people who are most vehemently opposed to him are gonna become his instruments and his servants. So regardless of how we are going to get there, our mission right now, our task, our calling is the same. As Christians, we are called to live a life of sacrificial obedience, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, loving even our enemies. We need to trust and act in light of that mission that God has given us, prayerfully going out and doing what he's called us to do. So when a situation seems dire, when suffering just mounts up, when an individual seems beyond redemption, when we seem beyond redemption and we can't understand how we're gonna get where we need to go, let us not give up hope. Rather, let us trust through active prayer, praying constantly that our Lord who works his will in unforeseen ways will work his will in the midst of our suffering. So in conclusion, two final thoughts to round this out. First, the Christians throughout Acts experienced intense suffering because they were Christians, because they had called on the name of Jesus and they were proclaiming him to people. Throughout history, Christians have been persecuted and suffered because of their faith. Throughout history, and even now in the modern period. So a question we here in modern day America should be asking ourselves is, are we experiencing suffering because we're Christians? 
are we experiencing suffering because we know Jesus? If the answer is no, then we need to examine if our Christian faith is impacting our life. I'm not saying that immediately I want you to go out and start being offensive and annoying to people and say, I'm a Christian, go ahead and persecute me. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying our Christian faith should so impact our lives that we will suffer because of it. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, definitively. Not saying that each one of us is gonna be stoned in the same manner as Stephen, but our Christian faith should so impact our lives that we're gonna have to give something up because of it. We're going to have to experience some, some form of suffering because of it. In the reflection quote in the web bulletin, Oswald Chambers, a Christian uh, from the 20th, 19th century said, no healthy Christian ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. We should be so passionate about living our lives for Jesus, so passionate about fulfilling God's will in our lives that suffering will most likely come. The second concluding thought, verse eight, we read an amazing end to this passage, which if we really meditate on is a really discouraging passage, the suffering and persecution of the early church. We read it conclude with, there was much joy in that city, in the city of Samaria. This can kind of be difficult for us to understand, but God mysteriously uses our suffering to often bring joy and life to others. This is what Jesus, the Son of God, did on our behalf. His suffering brings us life and joy. And that's why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 can say, let's look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus's suffering, his death, brought us joy and him joy through seeing us come to know the Father. The early Christians' suffering brought the Samaritans joy as they brought, as they came to know their heavenly father. God mysteriously uses our suffering to bring joy into the world. So as we live in this world, suffering and persecution will occur. We need to trust our good, loving heavenly father, that he's working in it, that he's using it for our good. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are our good, good king, that you are king over suffering, you are in the midst of it all, and you will amazingly use it in ways that we can't even comprehend. We trust you, Lord God. In the times when we doubt, in the times where we struggle, please strengthen us, Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord God, that as we go out from here today, we might live on the mission that you have given your people. And that as difficulty, suffering, and yes, even persecution come, let us faithfully live for you in the midst of it, trusting you and proclaiming you through our lives and our words to those around us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.